When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and welcome to Intelligence Squared with me, Gideon Rachman. Today's episode is a co-production with my own podcast, The Rachman Review for the Financial Times. That's a podcast where I meet the decision makers and thinkers who are shaping world affairs. If you'd like to hear more, do search for The Rachman Review wherever you get your podcasts. We're recording on Friday, May the 12th from our studio in London, and I'm excited to introduce our guest, K.U. Jin, who's an economist and professor at the London School of Economics. She's an advisor to the China Banking Regulatory Commission on Fintech, has advised and consulted with the World Bank and the IMF. She's born and raised in Beijing in China, but she attended high school and college in the United States. So is a rare but completely bicultural person, and we'll touch on that during the discussion. Your new book is The New China Playbook Beyond Socialism and Capitalism, and you deal, I think, in a fascinating way with a lot of fundamental questions about how China's developing socially and economically. And I'll get onto that very quickly. But as I mentioned, you're somebody who, who's at home in both the US and China, and yet now there's enormous tension between those two countries. It must be a kind of difficult period for, for, for you to thinking about that. Well, first of all, it's great to be with you, Gideon. Uh, thanks so much for having me. Indeed, it's for me, but also for a large swath of Chinese people who have had education in the West and to actually do work around both countries to feel extremely sad and frustrated. It's a period where, you know, it's two countries where we see could have enormous possibility in spurring each other forward and collaboration, even competitive collaboration. But it's it's really sad to see the misunderstandings that have shrouded even rationality. And it's becoming increasingly dangerous to not see each other's perspective. Yeah. I mean, you, you talk about it as, as misunderstanding, and I'm sure there's a lot of that. I worry that it could be something even worse, that it's actually a clash of interests, that these two countries, uh, say, over an issue like Taiwan, just want fundamentally different things, and that no amount of discussion is going to talk that away. There are many people who feel that there's almost very little hope because the two countries have two different worldviews, different political systems, and different value systems. And even with economic convergence, there has been very little convergence elsewhere. But we also have to remember that this is a vicious circle to believe that nothing can be worked out, and then it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. So we must do utmost to avoid that. But we have to look at the practicalities, the economic issues, the substantive issues, because frankly, the two economies are in their worst state of the economy uh, for various reasons, as well as is the rest of the world. But there could be things to be done. Mm. It's interesting also because the histories of the two countries have become, certainly the economic histories are so tightly bound together over the last 30, 40 years. I mean, I'd, I doubt the rise of China would have been nearly as rapid without the opening of the American market, but also the American economy has been transformed by the way in which it's cooperation with China. We, we also often forget that China is no longer an exporter of cheap 
furniture and toys, but actually a main exporter and importer of intermediate products, which accounts for two thirds of global trade. We just don't see that. But these intermediate products makes companies more profitable, makes companies more productive. The likes of Apple, the likes of Western companies and Chinese companies. There's a lot of things that are not in the headline news that are just as important. We're talking about trillions of dollar at stake with economic disengagement between a 15 trillion and a 21 trillion dollar economy. Well, we'll get back to disengagement at some point later. But I'd like to go back to, if you like, the beginning, the opening of China, because as you make clear in your book, you you were of the generation that grew up when China was still poor. You were, your family experienced rationing, and you've seen this incredible transformation. Just give me a sense of of what's happened over the course of your lifetime and what you witnessed. In the 1980s, we lived on rationed food and cooked from communal kitchens, and even 11 square meter apartments were considered a luxury. And I remember uh, reading poems with my father under candlelight, three nights of blackouts every week in Beijing. And fast forward, now my classmates have houses and computers and cars, and they've seen everything. It's a big transformation. But for me personally, to have come to the West when I was a teenager and to see that the first thing they asked me was just about, you know, the political. Issues around China, but then a few years later in college, people were learning Chinese. They were going to China for American students, by the way, to seek jobs, to seek opportunities. All of that within 10-15 years, an enormous, amazing transformation. Particularly, must be incredible contrast with the experience of your parents' generation, because your father was caught up in the Cultural Revolution, like so many of that generation. Indeed, like Xi Jinping, sent out to the countryside, and then has seen this political. I mean, the Communist Party is still in charge, but it, it, it's an unrecognizable country from that period. How much is it difficult for your generation to understand the experiences of the Cultural Revolution generation? Well, one of the big themes in my book is about this change in generation. And we have to understand that China going forward is going to be shaped and determined by a completely different generation from the generation of my parents. More prosperous, confident, uh, grew up in relative prosperity uh, compared to my parents' generation who have gone through physical and psychological hardship. They're invariably risk averse. The new generation consumes and has a knack for lifestyle consumption and borrows. My parents' generation save for a rainy day day. And that has come to become the defining feature of the Chinese economy. But all of that is about to change with the rival new generation. The new generation has also uh, forgotten some of that uh, memories of the Cultural Revolution, of the Great Famine. And they look at the world with more open and cleared-eyed views. Data have shown that they're more open-minded than the previous generation on a range of issues, including diversity. Even they care about social issues like the environment and animal wildlife, which is all progress. So we're about to see a new playbook powered by a new generation with a different outlook, and I would say with um, more values that converge with the younger generation around the world. So they are a positive force for China, but they also have pressing challenges uh, themselves currently. There's a fascinating chapter in your book about them being also the generation marked by the one-child policy, and which I think comes in more or less at the same time as Deng, Deng Xiaoping opens up the economy. And I think you said in your book that in your school class, like everybody was a single child. There was one exception. A Uyghur classmate of mine had a sibling. But other than that, 40 kids, all single. Absolutely. What, I mean, have you been able to, I guess because everyone's like that, it's hard to assess what the psychological impact of that is. But although you talk about it a bit, and it seems to me a combination of 
intense pressure and also perhaps a sense of entitlement. I think that people underestimate or don't fully understand the profound social and economic consequences the one-child policy has played on China and, frankly, the rest of the world. This generation is highly educated but also grew up in super competition, overburdened, very lonely. I mean, don't forget the Chinese are the inventors. This generation are the inventors of the only singles day in the world, a day in which they splurge and borrow and... Alibaba gets to process half a million orders per second. At the same time, they have obligations to their parents who now only have themselves, only have one child. And so they have to face, as the Chinese people in general have to do, have to balance between deference to authority, at the same time, their free-willed, independent thinking and that education that has empowered them. It's always a balancing act. Um, So they have a unique set of problems. And of course, now with the rising housing prices, Can they afford to have a bigger family? And they have shown in the statistic that they don't want to get married anymore and they don't want to have as many children. All of these are social consequences somewhat somewhat related to the one-child policy. And of course, the government has now reversed the one-child policy. But from what you're saying there may be an irreversible social change already in train. The habit of having no siblings, a small families, is one thing. Uh, I think the government is desperately trying through a variety of factors, including cracking down the education system and even coming up with very creative ways to encourage single women to have children, something that is radical considering such a traditional culture and, and society, including uh, the real estate, reigning in the real estate sector, all has somewhat to do with a new generation. But the fact is, 25% of college students last year didn't get a job. The high youth unemployment rate of 20% above, a big gap of between expectations and reality of not fulfilling their dreams are all a present challenge for the Chinese government. Yeah, and that's a stunning statistic because, you know, if I just think about it from first principles, here you've got this economy that's been growing at incredible pace for the last 40 years a very small rising generation because it's a one-child generation, and yet you say 20% of graduates are unemployed. How can that be? It's interesting that there are 30 million manufacturing jobs that need to be filled and that can't be filled by 2025. And in high-tech sectors like semiconductors, there are 300,000 vacancies this year. This shows you that the present problem is not that there are not enough jobs, but there's a big gap in terms of education and skill. Now, these Chinese students, very smart and very well-educated and impressive. However, they don't have internships. Many of them don't show the kind of business acumen and flexibility, mental flexibility, because they have been overburdened by a competitive test-taking, rote memorization kind of education system. So they're not that appealing to the private businesses that demand passion, interest, ethics, and some experience. So... I think that there are lots of things to fix and they will be a positive force for the new generation, but the whole economy has to change somewhat. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, 
financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. There's an interesting, again, anecdote in the book where you say that there was a cigarette making plant where the the people assembling the cigarettes were all graduates and some of them postgraduates on that line. Top masters and college students uh, in cigarette factories, nannies uh, that have master degrees from Columbia. These are all things that have caused uh, a social uproar. Uh, you got to ask, you know, the Chinese families, what is it all about? Their hope, right? It's all about the next generation. For a long period of time, the bottom run of society was happy and content because they knew that their children could have a better future. That's what sustained. That was the bedrock to social stability. Today, it's a completely different issue with reduced expectations that even if you pour and about 25% of household uh, expenditure are devoted to educating one child, if you are investing that much resources, in the end, your kid doesn't get a good job, then what, what is your hope? What are you, what are you, how are you going to look into the future? And the kid itself must feel horribly demoralized because all the family's hopes are poured into them and then perhaps through no fault of your own, you haven't delivered. There's a new phenomenon called lying flat, basically giving up. Uh, Now, that's become a focal point for the Chinese leaders. They don't think that this is something that should be encouraged. But, you know, I want to take a different perspective on this. Lying flat is not about being utterly disgruntled and giving up per se, it's also uh, come to characterize part of the new generation that is more relaxed, that's less ambitious, that is less hungry. Now, don't forget that when China joined the WTO, one of the core reasons that's why... That's in 2001. That yeah. was in 2001, when it, w- when it was so successful, was not because of the subsidies, but because there was a large swath of really productive and super hardworking lab- labor-, labor force, where the Foxconn uh, workers opted for three shifts a night, that generation is gone. That's not the current generation of, of new workers. So we want to think about China's new generation as having a better lifestyle, life consumption balance and work-life balance and have a different vision, different perspective. They're not going to compete and race for the bottom. And that's that kind of job is going to be passed on to other countries. It's always a cycle of renewal. 
What about the um, kind of social political implications of that? Because as you say, you cite in the book a few kind of world values surveys which suggest that perhaps surprisingly to many in the West, Chinese people are basically among the more contented in the world. I don't know, you know, what the methodology of these things are, but let's take them at face value. But if you now have a rising generation who have disappointed expectations, that must be a concern, what's well, a concern to any government, but to a one-party state which, which relies on its legitimacy, performance legitimacy is a phrase the Chinese have often quoted at me. Are they concerned about that? They're currently now very focused on the new generation. Let's not forget that the young generation were a critical part of ending the pandemic controls. And so their credibility, their legitimacy rests on the trust of this new generation. So there are a variety of things that the Chinese government is doing. For instance, expanding the capacity and quality of vocational schools. The gap in manufacturing, as I spoke about, is because China is primarily still a manufacturing-based economy. So they want to educate and equip these students, the new generation, with the right skill set to fill that gap. They are expanding the service sector, where many of these highly educated people can be absorbed more than manufacturing sectors. And even, you know, the common prosperity policies, which includes, you know, trying to crack down on technology and education sectors, of course, it was unfortunately implemented and had severe consequences on the economy. But by design and intention, they were trying to make uh, the society more harmonious, less competitive. This is where where they said, uh, they almost overnight said, private tutoring illegal. Why why was that done? Because they felt too much money and too much pressure on people. Too much pressure on the kids, overburdened by tutorials. It's a race to the bottom because everybody spends to have more tutorials and that doesn't get you anywhere. Just give me a picture of the kind of social life that involved for the, the children involved. What was going on? They have the busiest schedule of everybody. Saturdays and Sundays packed with five classes a day and tutorials even after classes uh, during the weekday. Even people from the working class are sending their kids to tutorials. Uh, you know, really spending a lot of money, but to what effect? In the end, it's all the same. It's all just test taking. Overnight, the government said, "Okay, this is going to stop. There were also exploitative uh, motivations of these private tutorial companies. So I think the intention is not a wrong one, but you you basically killed a part of the industry overnight. And these kind of dramatic moves we often find so so radical in in, in the Chinese government. Sometimes they're first of all meant to, you know, make a big point um, to signal, and then they're gradually rolled back. So it's a process of constant recalibration and fine tuning, uh, and the pendulum often swings. But it's often very dramatic in the beginning. Yeah, but it also tells you something about how dramatically the Chinese government's way of operation differs from, say, a standard Western government. I can't imagine the UK government saying overnight, OK, no more private tutoring, that's it. Uh couldn't be done. Really. We The Western governments have argued for a long time about regulating big tech, regulating AI, and little is done. China, for all what you disagree with their implementation procedures, tend to can move quickly once they've made up their mind. So there's pros and cons of both. Yeah. Just on this aging thing, I mean, one of the great things that uh, you hear all the time is this phrase that China will get old before it gets rich, that Inadvertently, Deng Xiaoping kind of put a, a landmine under the Chinese economy because dependency ratios are going to go wild out of whack. You'll have a shrinking population, an aging population, and that this is what, in the end, 
will slow the Chinese economy down, cause it big problems. What's your take on that? I don't agree with the view that aging is what's going to cause the Chinese economic slowdown. Um, as I mentioned, I think just uh, deploying the most productive and educated part of the labor force today is a more pressing issue. But also, I tend to believe that the economy is endogenous, that technologies and demographics interact with each other, uh, that there will be more adoption of labor-saving technologies, just as the case in Japan. And we're now talking about uh, artificial intelligence uh, displacing many jobs. Uh, the question is, can you get the right kind of education to deal with a modern economy? Can you get the people who are present, who are educated to do fulfilling jobs? And here, I think the government can play a big role. And by the way, if you look at the economic impact of demographics across countries internationally, something I've done research on, it doesn't show up as a significant factor driving major slowdowns in the economy. Countries like Japan and other places which have had aging issues, there were other really, really pressing macroeconomic factors that were more dominant as driving force. Yeah, well, I mean, you mentioned the, the deflation of the Japan bubble, and obviously those parallels are in everyone's minds. I think, well, maybe, you know, China will be a bit like Japan, have this incredible surge and then suddenly slow. One thing that did strike me as a parallel is property. There was a big property bubble in Japan, and there does seem to be one in China as well. You make the point that people on salaries that are like maybe a quarter of an American middle class salary are paying similar prices for flats in Shanghai that, were, that they would be paying for in Boston. The Japanese lost decade was uh, in large part due to the collapse of a big asset bubble. We have not seen the collapse of a big asset bubble in China, at least not yet. Even with the reigning in the property sector, we've seen investment slow down, negative investment growth, but the prices have not fallen dramatically. And the reason is multiple fold, but one is that there's still a huge pent-up demand for urban properties. If you think about the Chinese rural population, by the way, 600 million of which have not even reached middle income by international standards, they all want an apartment in urban areas. Um, it's a status symbol. As I mentioned in the book, bachelors want to have a property to, to, to kind of showcase that they are eligible. So the pent-up demand is there. There was an oversupply for a period of time because property for all this time was a quick win. And that has just completely changed. But it's nowhere like Japan where there was a big collapse and a break of the bubble uh, currently. So I don't think that China is going to suffer from a Japanese economic decline. But just give us a sense again of what it feels like socially having these very high prices. Again, there's an incredible anecdote in the book where you talk about the, the difficulty of getting an apartment in Shanghai, which somehow led a young person to get their parents to divorce so that they could um, buy a property. Just explain to me how, why that would be necessary. How does that happen? Property has been an obsession for Chinese. And part of the reason is that if you look at the financial system, what can you invest in? Uh, if you have some money, uh, stack it under your mattress is one, putting in the uh, in banks and earning a zero real rate of return is another, or uh, putting into the roller coaster stock market, which haven't really paid off. So there are not a lot of choices. So even as an investment property has been uh, very popular for Chinese households. Now, in places like Shanghai, the demand is so high that you have these kind of very creative ways. And by the way, not not surprising at all to circumvent these restrictions. And we have to understand there are... Sorry, the restrictions being what? The being that you're not eligible to purchase a second house unless you meet certain criteria. Okay. So divorce was one of uh, the possibilities, but there are also all, all, 
kinds of rules that I can't keep track of. But we have to understand there's a big heterogeneity within China. The first and second tier cities, which do show the first tier cities show evidence of a uh, of a property bubble, whereas for the rest of the country there is no evidence of property bubble because the growth of property prices has been roughly in line with household income growth. And so for many third fourth tier cities, the price can still keep on going up. Yeah, but in Shanghai, Beijing, etc., the prices are, at least by Western standards, kind of out of whack with income. Well, no, we have to think about it in this way: housing price is an expectations of the future. Right. If you believe Beijing and Shanghai is going to be a cosmopolitan global city of the likes of New York and Tokyo, then high prices show up today. So it could also reflect highly optimistic views about the future. And now you can say that is no longer rationalized, so there will be an adjustment. But for a long period of time, they were looking for it. And by the way, there are a lot of really wealthy Chinese people、sure. all around.、So. Yeah, I mean, is again, you talked about how the younger generation have certain parallels with the issues that young people in the West have, and you must have a view on both because you teach at the LSE, so you know lots of kind of, you know,、uh, Western students, but you also teach in Beijing and so on. Is there the same sense amongst the Chinese young that the system isn't working for them anymore, or rather that? If you're a member of the elite, if you've already got money or if you've got connections, you'll be okay. But if you're not, you're kind of looking from the outside in. I mean, I remember when I was in Beijing at one point talking to a, a student at Tsinghua. He was he made it, you know, but he was from a small city, and he said, you know, there's so many kids in my class from a few schools in Beijing.、Uh, you know, from my city, maybe one person got to this university, and it reminded me of the kind of laments you get here in Britain about, oh well, you know the. Sort of the rich still dominate universities or Harvard legacy students. Do you see a parallel there? Meritocracy has always been the bedrock of society, Chinese society, especially in the last forty years. There's an argument to be made that there's somewhat of an erosion of meritocracy, meritocracy, which I find to be、uh, very frustrating and high, a big challenge、uh, to China.、Uh, but still, until very recently, if you look at the surveys, the expectations of the young is still pretty rosy、uh, in China. A big contrast to the、uh, younger generation around the world. It was only during the The pandemic, where many of the university students felt extremely frustrated, I think that some of that sentiment has changed.、Um, but、uh, there, there is not the sense that the system isn't working for them. It's the, you know, whether the economy can recover enough that there will be confidence that there will be jobs. And yes, there is a greater frustration with the circumstances. But these young people look at what's happening outside of China. They look, and they are not inspired. They look at what's happening with democracies, what's happening with the random police shooting. In the U.S., or the democracies that have been transposed onto foreign soil in various parts of the world, they look at the chaos in Hong Kong. They're not inspired. They don't think that there's an alternative of a better model, and that shows in the surveys. In surveys, they ask the younger generation whether China would be suited for a different and alternative model, and the majority of them do not believe so, even though they admit that there are huge challenges for the Chinese. Yeah,、system. I was actually kind of had an open question about those figures you cite because you say that. You know, 38% of young Chinese say that a Western political model would not be suitable for China, but that leaves open the possibility that the other sort of two thirds. Might think it was suitable. The sentiment towards the West changed in 2017. So I'd say that before 2017, many of them were quite attracted by、uh, different forms of political systems, at least as a possibility for China, and looking at the West. But things did take a dramatic move in 2017. What happened then? 
Trump <laughs> as, a, as an example. And of course, with the rising tensions of US-China. Now, but of course, 2017 is also the year that she amends the constitution and extends his period in power. So that could also cause a few question marks. Yeah, But that's the, the time when the, the Western perceptions in particular have uh, shifted, turned definitely. shifted uh, for the negative. We just have to understand that there's superficial globalization. You know, the fact that we like Hollywood and uh, NBA, et cetera, et cetera, that Current is very, ex- very appealing for, for the young Chinese. But their cultural roots are overwhelmingly local. As I show in my book, the statistics, 80% of the students from 2013 have returned to China, not only because it's close to home, because they have good Chinese food, of course, that's important, but also because of the opportunities that are afforded them, the entrepreneurial spirit, the fact that people had great jobs in Google and Facebook also opt to go back to China to make Make their life, and the fact that they're creating their homegrown kind of culture, modern culture, cosmopolitan culture, so vibrant in the second-tier cities. So they 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 are fostering a, d- a different environment there. Yeah, I mean, how has the pandemic and the handling of the pandemic affected the relationship between people and the government? Because you mentioned it ended very suddenly when there were young people demonstrating, and that was quite striking. Uh, the government shifted so quickly. What do you make of that episode? Long more than an episode, a couple of years. I was reassured that when there was concerted pressure from the younger generation, but also from the people, potentially even the local governments, that such a, a long-term kind of or, or steadfast policy was broken. It shows that there are mechanisms, this is a very important point, that there are mechanisms embedded in the systems, uh, whether it's from the people and social media or the competitive mechanism within the Chinese government, that makes it so that preferences are still revealed and potentially shape the outcomes of political and economic decisions. Now, of course, that is the ongoing challenge as the Chinese government has to manage a much more complex society going forward, not like the time when I was born and everybody was content with having a growing income. Today, it's increasingly complex. But this new generation, young generation, overturning a key policy was more positive for me. But we also forget... But but you say the preferences revealed. I mean, they were revealed by people demonstrating on the streets. It wasn't a particularly sophisticated polling exercise. Absolutely. But it's a two-way monitoring system. And social media creates that kind of platform, uh, not only for the Chinese government to watch what was happening on the ground, but other way as well. And I think the complexity of the society is a big challenge for the Chinese government. And they do listen. They do listen. Now, I still think the ongoing challenge is how do you have the political mechanism to include the much more important participants of the economy, like the private businessmen, the entrepreneur in that system, if they don't do it and they don't adapt, the system is not going to be as powerful or will enable the Chinese dreams, aspirations that it has laid out. Yeah. And you use the phrase the Chinese dream. It's one that Xi Jinping uses and he talks about the great rejuvenation of the Chinese people. But I know some economists worry that she is so statist, uh, as they see it, that he's in danger of killing that entrepreneurial spirit. And they point particularly to the fate of Jack Ma, who was the the icon of Mm. Chinese business, appeared to say something or do something the government didn't like and is now, as far as we know, sort of teaching students in Tokyo. He's called back now. (laughs) Oh, oh, really? Is he? Well, well, tell me first what you made of that episode, but also more broadly what it said about 
the government's relationship with the most dynamic business elements in society? Well, the first thing to note is, broadly speaking, there can be a coexistence of seemingly paradoxical and irreconcilable things in China. That's something that perhaps a Western audience ought to keep in mind, and that no policy is permanent, and they're constantly being fine-tuned. So the pretext of this is under the umbrella of common prosperity under President Xi, how to achieve equitable growth. But I think um, more, maybe perhaps, what the audience can relate to is that in Xi's view, China doesn't want to be like the U.S., a high growth, a great economy, but highly inequitable and politics sing to the tunes of corporates. China wants an olive-shaped income distribution, narrow on the ends and fat in the middle. It wants the corporates to sing to the tunes of politics. And so this initial dramatic sweeping regulatory clampdowns and technology companies that had consequences for personalities and private businessmen, such as Jack Ma, uh, was, of course, a devastating blow to the economy because of the confidence issue. Um, however, Didn't it wiped a trillion dollars off the stock exchange? Yes, it did. Because because, extraordinary yeah, because of American investors couldn't make what was going to happen to the yeah. private entrepreneurs. And that's all very understandable. Now, that's a painful lesson for the Chinese government, understanding that whatever they say, their intentions, their ambitions have real economic and immediate capital markets consequences. That was not the case in the old playbook, which was economy built on industrialization. In the new playbook around innovation and encouragement of entrepreneurs, they have to have credibility and commitment. Something the Western government struggled with for a long period of time to learn. Now is the learning process for the Chinese government. However, that said, now you see that in the recent past, in the recent last few months, the state has rolled back some of these heavy blows, invited Jack Ma to come back, and there's a lot of luring private businessmen and trying to restore that confidence because guess what? Today's China's economy, the private sector is firmly in the driver's seat and they do the heavy lifting of the economy like during the financial crisis of 2009, they call on Team China, state banks flush with cash uh, and state-owned enterprises uh, splurging on infrastructure, and you get the economy back going. That no longer, longer works. So even if the West believes that there's a statist approach of President Xi and control on the SOEs, the reality is that pretty much everything about the economy is driven by the private sector. And the government is keenly aware of that. And obviously now, both the development of the economy, but also this emerging struggle between the US and China that we started on, technology is absolutely key to it. And there's a debate. Uh, some in the, in the US say, you know, China, because it's not as open a society as us, is not going to be able to advance as rapidly technologically. Others say, well, look at mobile payments, for example, where China was way ahead and that China will, in fact, surprise, if you like, liberal theorists and prove that you can have rapid technological advance in a one-party state. What do you think is happening? I mean, just on the ground, as you observe these various sort of groundbreaking technologies, if there is a race between China and America, who's ahead? I think that we ought to be a little bit more nuanced when you talk about technology, which is a very broad concept. China is very strong on innovations around business models and applications, and frankly, coming up with practical solutions to real problems. By the way, developing countries, their biggest problem is not that they don't have access to the most advanced technologies, but they don't have access to technologies they can actually use. And these would be Chinese technologies, more suitable for them, for 80% of the global population, than American technology. So 
I believe that because these, they're cheaper or simpler to use. Because they're cheaper, reliable, quality, all that access, and that they solve practical problems. So they're more user friendly uh, for developing countries. Well, give me a couple of practical examples. For instance,、uh, solar panels, or you know, the renewables is a very good example. EVs will be a very prominent example. Remember that controversial technology, forced technology transfers, if you will, didn't make China leap ahead in traditional automotives, but it's often in greenfield technologies where, vehicles,、yeah. where China has speared ahead. EVs is one one of such examples. But even in fact, water- I read in the Financial Times no less that next year China will become the world's largest exporter of cars. China, China has became the largest consumer and producer of EVs within a decade, not least thanks to the government rolling out four million chargers around the country, as opposed to 140,000 in the U.S. And the state coordinating、uh, supply chains around these EV companies. So that that comes back to the point about technology, right? Yes, the U.S. is printing out a bunch of aggressive policies to try to hobble China's technological growth, but we have to remember China has an all-income Compassing innovation ecosystem within the country. There's close proximity between the downstream players like、uh, EVs, autonomous vehicles, and artificial intelligence companies with chip companies. Their close proximity means that their demand will drive these innovation efforts. And we have to remember that there are a lot of unexpected consequences of American policies because that just gives a huge boost to the domestic industry. So it's much more complex than saying U.S.-China technology. Competition and decoupling.、Mm-hmm. And one thing that everybody's been waiting for is the moment at which China becomes the world's largest economy. And I think in purchasing power, it happened actually in 2014. But even when that happens, it will still, on a per capita basis, be much poorer than the United States or Western Europe. And you write quite a lot in the book about can they make this leap from a $10,000 per person economy to a $30,000 per person economy? And that will be very difficult. I mean, are you confident it'll happen? Well, that's the hard part.、Uh, the catching up growth. I don't want to、uh, underestimate, you know, this remarkable economic success story. But catching up is much easier than becoming a rich country. And to become the thirty thousand dollar income per capita a nation, you need innovation because productivity growth is the only sustainable source of economic growth. And lots need to change. For instance, institutions needs to be better. The financial system, which supports innovative companies, needs to totally. Reform. They are the last old dinosaur in the Chinese economy. Why? Because the Chinese state likes control. They don't want to cede control. They want to protect retail investors. But the longer they protect, the longer it will take for them to learn. And you can never get a dynamic, vibrant financial system. Of course, with all the problems in the U.S., I would still argue that it's one of the key critical contributors to U.S.'s innovation system. And then, of course, as we were mentioning, how do you get a wider, diverse set of preferences from Businessmen to students to people to be reflected on the top. All of that is really important. It's easier to copy goods, but it's very difficult to copy good institutions. Talking of which, I mean, as I referred to earlier, she is now entering his third term, and as some、uh, Chinese liberal put it to me, it's not the third term that worries me; it's the fourth, it's the fifth. Do you think that Chinese institutions have this flexibility that you think they need? Political reforms have lacked economic reforms. I'm not saying that there there has been none. There have been, but it's significantly slower and much less visible. 
I think it is a big challenge. I think the system has always been able to adapt to the evolution of society and the economy, even in the last 40 years. Um, more competition, more checks and balances. Of course, it's taken a few steps back in the recent years. And I do think it's a big challenge. But with today, I mean, at least for the short term, let's just hope that the fact that She's inner circle are loyalists means that there's going to be more trust in the inner circle and that there'll be more delegation, at least in terms of practical issues like the economy, to the experts and to the technocrats and to trust them. And there has just been a reshuffle. A lot of these names won't be familiar to people in the West, but who are the key people in the inner circle who'll be driving things like economic reform? Well, I would say that Li Qiang, the premier, is the most important figure. And we have to remember, all of these standing committee members, Politburo members, have all been deep, profound beneficiaries of reform and opening up. And they're not going to forget that. That's what changed their personal lives. And Li Qiang's background is also very interesting because he rose to the top by helping private businessmen succeed. And he had made famous speeches even when he was more lowly municipal levels. If you guys have great ideas, come to me. We're all going to support them. And he thoroughly understands the deep frustrations and challenges that face private businessmen. So he has made it clear that he wants to support them. And by the way, when he was Shanghai mayor, that's when Tesla also moved their factories there. And he was very encouraging of these foreign businesses. So I think we have an eminently practical and sensible person in charge of the economy. Okay, well, we've talked a lot about the things that made China's growth and this economic miracle, I think you can say, take place over the last 40 years. And you mentioned things that were crucial, innovation, the private sector and so on. But I guess one thing that was really crucial was peace, that this has been a long, you know, China hasn't been at war since 1979. But now, I think, certainly in Washington, it's quite striking and alarming how many people openly talk about the possibility of a war with China. I haven't been to Beijing since the since the pandemic, but people tell me the mood is quite nationalistic there. Just to finish on a depressing note, but uh, as somebody, again, who knows both societies very well, are you concerned about this prospect of war and of a sort of mirroring nationalism? Because people say that the rising generation of Chinese, you say they're, they're more confident, but that they're, some say they're also pretty nationalistic and that that's reflected at the top levels of government and the, there's a potential for a clash. I think the whole world is becoming more nationalistic, including in the U.S. and in many countries in the round world, and that is deeply worrying. You mentioned something that's absolutely correct. That's deep in the Chinese people's heart, even today, and especially leaders, and it is peace. Uh, the, the cost of war is still very fresh in the memory. Uh, China has not fought a war for decades, as you mentioned. So even on this very timely issue, the critical issue of today, of Taiwan, we can't forget that, well, they haven't had the experience of these uh, military confrontations. And so peace is still very much at the core of the leadership's top agenda. They understand that for China to reach the aspirations, including President Xi's aspirations, which is, by the way, most important, making the Chinese economy the biggest in the world, requires peace. And nobody, nobody is going to forget that. However, I think that errors in judgment, miscalculations are increasingly more likely. And On uh, both sides? On both sides. And one cannot tell where the escalation is coming from. It's interactive. It's dynamic. It's endogenous. Um, and the risk of a miscalculation is real. And I think both sides understand that. But what we do see is that when the temperature has 
been too hot for both sides, the presidents have respectfully tried to cool it down. I think maybe there's a view in China that left to the parties across the Taiwan Strait, there's more possibility of working out a solution, a peaceful solution. But the military conflict is really the very last resort that China would want to see. Okay, well, with that quite relatively hopeful note, (laughs) thank you very much for joining me and thanks to the listeners for listening in. It's been a pleasure, Gideon. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Intelligence Squared. This podcast was co-produced by me, senior producer Connor Boyle, and the podcast team at the Financial Times, with editing by executive producer Rowan Slaney. We'd love to hear your feedback and what you think we should be talking about next, who we should have on and what our future debates should be. Send us an email or a voice note with your thoughts to podcasts at intelligencesquared.com or on Twitter at Intelligence2. And if you'd like to hear more, attend some of our live events or peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue featuring some of the world's great minds, then head over to intelligencesquared.com.